0: Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro.
1: Welcome back to Explore the Space. My guest today is Amber Moore. Amber Moore is a hospitalist like myself, and she is in practice at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. She joins me to discuss her experiences going through a very challenging and difficult role reversal where a doctor becomes a patient. It's a challenge for physicians and healthcare providers to be on the other side of the provider coin, and it's something that we think about a lot, something that we talk about a lot, and it was really, really wonderful to have her come on and break down what that process looks like and feels like because it's one of almost sort of the big bugaboos of medicine. It's something that we never want to talk about, never want to acknowledge. This is one of those conversations that makes me so grateful that we have this podcast to break into some of these rare and frightening and unsettling topic. Amber and I both met a couple of years ago when we were part of the inaugural patient experience committee for the society of hospital medicine. And through that, I learned about the work that she does with patient family advisory councils, and that's something that we talk about as well. It's an extraordinary movement, and I think you're going to find that extraordinarily compelling. So without further ado, Amber Moore. Amber, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. There is this dynamic that comes up for physicians, and I remember this when I was training, that there's that sense of... Invincibility that we have and we see all this hardship and we see all this illness and sadness and we are above it somehow. And I remember it was always unspoken, but I remember that feeling. And I know that you've been on a journey that we'll talk about where that sense of structure and security and invulnerability was, was broken. But before we get to that, do you remember when you were training? Do you remember ever having that feeling of since I'm the doctor, I'm going to somehow be untouchable and invulnerable to anything bad that could happen to me?
0: That's a good question. Well, I think you do have to put a little bit of your a little bit of distance between you and what you're seeing with your patients. And maybe with that comes some degree of invincibility because, you know, you just see so much trauma and so much hardship on a daily basis that to really internalize all of that would be, you know, make it very hard to. To go on so i think some of that invincibility maybe does come with that need to kind of separate yourself to some degree from the work that you're doing just in order to to function on a day-to-day basis
1: i think you may have nailed it and maybe that's why it was always unspoken that it wasn't that we actually were because we're not but it's some almost like a defense mechanism that as we're learning and we're seeing these things for the first time that you just say well this can never happen to me therefore i can continue to go forward
0: yeah, but I don't think there's a physician that doesn't struggle with that balance to this day. And there was a senior physician in my group who gave a talk on humanism in medicine. And he had always been a um, a mentor to me and someone that I looked up as up to who had always, you know, done a really good job with that balance. And to hear him talk about this, the struggles that he continues to have, even after having been um, out of residency for, you know, 20 years or so was, was really interesting.
1: I remember when I was in training, I was a resident and in practice, occasionally one of my colleagues would have something come up. I remember for myself, I always felt very fortunate that I was able to avoid anything really bad, but we all have stuff that we have to deal with. But you are one of those people who really did spend a great deal of time on the other side of the physician-patient experience from the one that you and I are used to being on as being physicians. So take us through the start of that odyssey.
0: Yeah. Well, so it came at a really poignant time for me because I was in the middle of my chief residency. And so I was thinking a lot about how to train people and I was getting comfortable becoming a physician myself. Um, And so I, I actually had a lot on my mind and a lot going on at the hospital And it just happened to be one of those things where I was out for a walk on a Sunday afternoon and the unthinkable happened and the car went off the road and unfortunately hit both my husband and I while we were walking with our 18 month old and landed us both in the ICU and then extended recovery for about four to five months after the event.
1: When this happened to you, At what point did you begin to – I've had people ask me this, that when you get sick, how do you think about it? Do you start going through, okay, this is what needs to happen, thinking about it as a doctor or thinking about it as, wow, this just happened? What part of your brain was activated kind of in that moment when you realize something bad has happened and I have to deal with it the best that I can? Which part of the brain started firing first?
0: Yeah, I think it was only till later that I could really reflect on the experience of being a patient because in the moment it was just survival. And, you know, I had a young kid and so he was at the forefront of my mind and just literally learning how to walk again and dealing with kind of the daily ch- challenges that I was was facing after the accident left me very little room to kind of process. Um, and then I think you go through the the classic stages of grief, of, you know, denial and bargaining and, and for everyone that's drawn out over a different period of time. But I don't think it's till, you know, months later that I was really able to reflect back on it in any sort of meaningful way.
1: Give us a sense of the, the structure of your recovery in terms of you were in the ICU and then, what was the transition from the ICU? What, what sort of timeline were you like in the ICU, then, then the acute care hospital, then the rehabilitation period? How long? How much of your life did this take up?
0: Pretty much all of it for several months. I was only, I was brought to the emergency room and I, I don't remember anything until I woke up in the emergency room. And I remember one of my first memories was thinking, oh my gosh, where is my pager? I'm on call. Where's my pager? <laughs> um, and the first thing I said was call my program director. She needs to know that no one's covering the on-call pager. And so that was my first memory waking <laughs> in the emergency room. Um, Every so I,
1: resident and physician <laughs> is nodding saying that's exactly what I would have done too. right or Um, wrong. That would have been the first thought that no one's covering the code page or no one's covering the call phone. No question about it.
0: And after I I got over that, I, you know, have uh, intermittent memories from the first half hour in the emergency, or I should say several hours in the emergency room. And then I, my next memory is waking up intubated and, you know, they woke me up right before I was about to be, extubated, which was the day after I had come into the emergency room. So I wasn't in the ICU for very long. Uh-huh. And then I was on one of the general medical floors for about a week. And then I was lucky enough to be discharged home right away. I didn't actually go to a rehab, but that was primarily because I had 24 hour care from family members. So I, I was then in the care of my family for a couple months before I was able to move back to my condo. Um, my husband was at rehab for a month after after his hospitalization before he was able to um then come live with family and then eventually go back to our condo with us
1: so you really did feel and touch and experience the whole scope of what we as physicians do to patients intubate procedures lab draws wake up in the middle of the night you know pain control all of that sort of thing—that was your world completely flipped in the span of minutes.
0: Yeah, that's true. It definitely was, and i, I think there's a few. Um, I have a few poignant memories along the way that touch on some of those things. For example, you know, I remember waking up and I had, you know, a 13 centimeter degloving injury across my face, and I remember waking up. One morning on the um, medical floor and just having a surgeon standing there pulling stitches out of my face and thinking, oh, my gosh, no one told me this was happening right now. I just woke up. (laughs) And, you know, you think about the number of times we do things to patients without really warning them. And, you know, I was a physician. I knew I had stitches in my face. I knew they had to come out. But I didn't know I was going to wake up that morning (laughs) (laughs) to someone pulling um, stitches out of my face. Yeah. Um, I I think the other thing that was a really poignant memory for me in the process was just really that – difficulty of coordinating all that care once you leave the hospital, and I think that's something that we really underappreciate as physicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you've been through a major hospitalization, even for someone that knows the medical system and understands to some degree what that's like, just the logistics of getting to your doctor's appointments, getting a the physical therapy, um, and getting everything else you need, whether it's personal care, or groceries, or child care, um, is very overwhelming. And I can't imagine what that would be like for, for someone who You know, had no experience with the medical system, or didn't have family members that could help them through that process.
1: I think that you're absolutely right. You know, we we can't control that part of it, so we tee people up the best that we can. But Mm -hmm. yeah, you go home, you're you're tired, you're happy to be home, you're sore, maybe you didn't sleep well, and yet you have to go to all these different appointments, and there's all the phone calls, and then you're getting all the letters. It's absolutely overwhelming.
0: Yeah, and I I remember thinking before that happened to me. You know, when a patient wouldn't show up for a post discharge appointment, and I see residents and other physicians thinking this way too. Sometimes, is your kind of natural instinct is to think, well, you know, you're just dealing with your your illness. Like, can you just can you get to one appointment that doesn't seem like that big of a barrier to someone that's healthy? But when you're in the position of being as debilitated as I was, and so many of our patients are, it it can be a half day process to get into a doctor's appointment. So. Things like you know, just stacking appointments closer together or trying to get them all on the same day can really you know make a huge difference and allow you to get to your physical therapy or other things that you need to get done.
1: I think that there's an extraordinary amount that we can tease out from this on how our, our, ourselves as individual physicians, how our systems can do these things better. I want to circle back a little bit one more time into when you were in the hospital, if that's okay, around mm-hmm. as a physician having the doctors talk to you and tell you what they've seen is going on and the, the findings and the, the, the plan and, and how things are going to work going forward as a doctor, was it easier, harder, or no change in terms of internalizing that information and making decisions?
0: Well, I think for the first week, I really, um, I, I wasn't able to make any decisions because I'd had a major concussion and I, I really, you know, I, I couldn't, really understand what was going on. Mm -hmm. But I remember feeling that way with my husband after the fact, you know, when I was a little bit more oriented and he, you know, was having to go through some of those same decisions, um, and having, having a difficult time understanding or figuring out how, how involved I should be and how much of the decisions should I be of the decisions should I be making and how much should I be pressing his providers on the decisions that they were making. And that that's a difficult balance too.
1: Did you find it, helpful to be a doctor when you were interacting with the other physicians and nurses that were part of your care team? Did you notice that they interacted with you differently, spoke to you differently? I mean, you probably knew some of them. You've probably seen them doing their work arounded with them in the past. Were they interacting with you the same way as anybody else? Or did you feel like because you were a physician, their colleague, chief resident, these sorts of things, that things were being done a little differently? Well,
0: I think the language definitely is different because... Yeah. There, there is a language of medicine and it's easier to communicate when you're speaking, when two people are speaking that language. And so for me, that was helpful. But I think, you know, if you don't know that language, it certainly takes more time or it takes someone to interpret that language for you. Because I was hospitalized at my own institution, ironically, um, there was a different level of intensity to those, re- those interactions, I think. So mm-hmm. for example, the ED doctor that was on when I came in was someone that I had been collaborating on a project with you know in the two weeks prior to the accident and the surgical um, intern who was on my primary team had been my medical student on internal medicine when I was an intern and the neuro consult resident had been my intern when I was a resident and so there were all those dynamics that I was you know, if you had told me beforehand, I would—I think I would have shied away from having been in that situation, and maybe would have said, "Take me to a different hospital." But having gone through it right now, I—I I think it—I um, really appreciated having people take care of me that I i
1: trained myself and trusted, you know. Yeah, it's a, I mean, that's an amazing dynamic. Not only were they other physicians, but they were physicians that you'd help train. They were yeah. probably implementing skills that you can remember. Yeah, I remember <laughs> when I taught you how to do that. I remember when we discussed, <laughs> you know, this is the way to evaluate this piece of data, and these are the decisions that you'll make based upon it. That must have been. Was it unnerving? Was it? Were you confident, or did it not make much of a difference? Yeah, as opposed, it might to have
0: just- been. Un- it might have. It might have been unnerving if I had to, been. uh, more conscious but i think
1: you know
0: like I said i didn't have a, quite enough brain power to think about that and I, at the time i think i just felt really comfortable having people that i yeah. i trusted and i knew cared about me and having you know li- literally the support of the whole hospital behind sure.
1: me and was there ever the opportunity to debrief with any of those colleagues after the fact you're your home thankfully you've recovered to reconnect and say i can't believe we all went through that together Discuss what what was it like for them? What was it like for you to be to have them be part of your care team?
0: That's really interesting you bring that up because I did think about that a lot afterwards, and I actually sent an email after the fact to you know twenty five or so providers who had taken care of me, everyone from the physicians to the rehab team, and I think I only heard back from one or two of them, and that surprised hmm. me because I think as a hospitalist who doesn't follow um, patients through their full course of care a lot of the time I, I really yearn for that um, closure and that follow-up but you know I think sometimes people do their job and and they have to move on as we were talking about earlier there has to be some separation um, there are definitely some providers um, my nurse when I was on the floor and one of the physical therapists and both that neurology resident that I mentioned that I had helped train as well as the med student that I think, um, our relationship changed a little bit after that and was certainly more intense coming back to the hospital afterwards.
1: And I think that for a lot of them, you are that representation of that defense mechanism being broken that, you know what, this can happen to any of us. I'm not invincible. My Mm -hmm. friend and colleague and teammate and teacher got hurt and it was really hard for her and for her family. And it's really scary. And I'm a little freaked out too.
0: Yeah. Yep. It may have been that point for them.
1: So you got through your recovery process, thankfully, and you were able to return to work. And since you've gone back to work, you've been doing some really interesting and innovative things in terms of leveraging the experience that you had, what you went through. And like they say in comic books, right? Using your powers for good. What was that evolution like? When did you decide that, hey, you know what? This was awful and it was a tragedy and we've gotten through it and I want to take these experiences and start to reframe them for other people so that we can draw the best from it and, and be better.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, part of it was that it was such a tragedy and I felt like so much had been taken from me. Um, you know, I missed a good portion of my chief residency year, which I had been really looking forward to up to that point. That I I I almost it had to turn into something good. There had to be something yeah. good to come of it. So it I was needed a
1: counterpoint, right? It needed, it needed, yeah. yeah.
0: And so I was constantly looking for that, and that's when I got connected to both the SHM Patient Experience Committee and also the PFAC, um, the Patient Family Advisory Council at Eth Israel. And um, I thought that was important because. I just I I felt like I just had such a unique experience at, at that point. I mean, to not only have been a patient but to have been a patient in so many settings in the hospital that I practice in, it it just seemed like a shame to me to let that experience go to waste. So, I basically um just went to the leader of our group and said, "Hey, this is what I've been through and what do I do with that? How can I use that experience to to influence how we provide care here and how we think about the patient experience. And that's how I got involved.
1: Before this all happened, had you ever heard of the patient family advisory council or the concept of something like that even existing?
0: I did know it. I I knew it existed, but I, I hadn't really been involved with it. And I didn't know, I didn't really understand the breadth of the work that they do, especially at our institution where I think we are doing some really innovative things.
1: Cause for me, the first time I ever heard of it was when you and I met, when we both were inaugural members of the society of hospital and medicine patient experience committee and you told the committee about it and mm-hmm. framed it around your experience. And I was absolutely stunned that this sort of thing exists. How is it not everywhere yet? What is go- this is, <laughs> this is innovative. This is power. This is incredible. What is a patient family advisory council?
0: Yeah. So it's actually, you're right. It is surprising that it's not everywhere. It is, mandated in Massachusetts. Now, I think it's um, been mandated since around 2010, that hospitals have to have these committees. And basically, the goal is to have a group of patients and family members that can provide insights from their own experiences um, into various initiatives at the hospital. And it, you know, it does a bunch of different things. It kind of transforms the culture towards being more patient-centered, and it makes sure that any programs or policies that are developed are done so um, with the inclusion of the patient and family um, perspective so that's great and then i think it the the one piece of it that i didn't really understand until i began becoming involved with our council here is that i think the the f- people that are participating the volunteers really seem to get a lot out of it because in the same way that i was looking to Give something back to the institution. These patients have been through similarly difficult circumstances, and they all want to to make it better for other people that are having to go through the same thing. So, I found that they are they also get something out of it, and they're because of what they've been through. They're really invested in improving the experience for other people.
1: When you frame it like that, it sounds amazing. It also can come off and i could imagine some people would push back as saying this is pie in the sky stuff you're never going to get these people in a room the patients are going to feel like they get to say something and then it gets brushed off and then it doesn't get implemented and there's no buy-in and this is a fizzle how does the pfac that you're a part of and it sounds like across the state of massachusetts and i know that they're percolating all over the united states how does this get hardwired how do the patient's who may be physicians, maybe lawyers, engineers, whatever they are, who were thrust into the role unwanted as a patient, get to have their voice be heard, but also then see it realized that, see that this project that you asked my opinion on, what I contributed is part of that package.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a big, I think that's a big piece of it for them too, because they want to, to know that what they're doing is making a difference. And at our PFAC Meetings, We have, you know, individuals from across the institution who are trying to implement new programs or policies come and present their ideas in front of the, the PFAC. And mm-hmm. I think the thing is, it it's so poignant when you're getting feedback from a patient. It, you just can't ignore it. It's different when it, um, I think sometimes is when you have a decree handed down to you from an administrator. But, you know, we're all in it because we want to make things better for patients. So I actually... I think it's pretty impossible to ignore when you hear something coming from a patient or family member. And then once the initiative is implemented, the you know whoever was was heading the initiative will come back and often report on how it went, and you know cl- kind of close the loop so that the members feel like their input was heard.
1: So you get a phone call out of the blue from a hospital administrator in Oregon, and they say, mm-hmm. "Dr. Moore." We want to implement a PFAC at our institution. Give me the quick breakdown. I'm walking into a meeting, but I need the quick breakdown of what are the key benefits that we get as an institution and as a community when we do this, that without this, we're not going to get, that we're going to miss completely. What would you say that those things are, having been a part of one of these for a couple of years?
0: Yeah, I think well, with both the work that I've done with our local one and with the SHM One, what you gain is a perspective that is really impossible to get from anywhere else, and it is impossible to predict. And so I think um, the best. I like
1: that. It's impossible to predict. That's really interesting. Yeah. So,
0: for example, when we went, um, when we we did this with our SHM group, the first um, question that we asked our national PFAC was what is one thing that a hospitalist could do to improve the patient experience? So, you know, coming from, coming at, looking at that question as a physician, it seems pretty straightforward, but interestingly, the most common response we got was what is a hospitalist? Yeah. And so, you know, that, that's something that we just assumed was clear. And now we're realizing, okay, maybe what we should be focusing on is trying to better identify ourselves and explain what we do to patients rather than jumping into, you know, maybe that's part of the patient experience. And, and that's something that we certainly did not think of from the onset, because otherwise we would have phrased the question a little bit differently. And, mm-hmm. and I find that's more often the case than not. We consistently see this with initiatives that are brought to our PFAC, and then with the questions that we raise of our national PFAC through SHM, it's just you cannot predict what's going to come back. And oftentimes it's uh, extremely illuminating. And I think the biggest mistake that people often make when presenting an idea to a PFAC is they actually come in too late. So they've already decided kind of what they're going to do and they have this program in place and they want feedback on the program that they've started. And then once they bring it to the PFAC, they realize, Oh, I really should have done this much earlier because I've actually constructed the whole um, project or program in a way that, you know, I would have done differently if I had brought this to the patients
1: earlier. Right. Uh, To me, it just seems like the sort of, tool that you bring the you bring an idea to and you know if it's all physicians and administrators and nurses in a room hashing it out that's one prism i mean that's like the definition of anchoring bias but when you bring it to a cohort of patients who've been in your institution that you guys help take care of that's the sledgehammer. I mean, that's the one that just is going to shatter all of your presuppositions, all of the things that you think are taken for granted and are absolutes. And they're just going to stomp it and say, you guys are wrong. And you're right about these other things that you didn't even think about. And it Mm -hmm. just, does that happen? Is it that dramatic or is it a little more nuanced?
0: I think sometimes it is, is that dramatic? I think people who have been through the experiences that our patients have been through have strong opinions on things and yeah. they it's very raw all the time. So I think, interesting. Yeah. I think it's often not nuanced.
1: <laughs> yeah. Do you keep an eye on in terms of for people who've been a patient who are going to be a part of this, just in terms of being sensitive and making sure that they feel ready and equipped and just giving them how much time do you, do you suggest a lapse before someone who was a patient come back to provide that kind of input and feedback? so that it's maybe not too raw, so that they're in a place where they're they're ready to have those discussions?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. I actually am not involved in specifically helping to select patients for the PFAC, but you, you do want somebody who can, again, when we spoke about my experience and I said, you know, I really can only be thoughtful about it after six months, you do want people that are going into it with the idea of wanting to improve the experience. And so mm there are some institutes like the barrel institute and the institute for patient and family centered care and age rq who all have toolkits on the specific you know how to set up a pfac and how to recruit members and things like that and and that's what our institution goes off of but i'm not um, i'm not involved in that particular aspect myself.
1: After you and I, well, after you spoke to our committee about this, I I wanted to learn more about it and do some reading. So I was reading the things from the barrel Institute and such. Mm -hmm. And the thing that was really helpful for me was to realize that this is not something that's designed to be a gotcha tool. It's not something designed as like calling someone before a tribunal and they get a tongue lashing. This is Mm -hmm. about developing strategies. Like you said, program development that just makes sure that the patient's voice is being integrated at a far higher level than before. Is that correct in how we would roll one of these out and present it to a medical staff?
0: Definitely. We kind of want to make it a standard that that experience is woven throughout a lot of what we we do, rather than an afterthought.
1: Mm -hmm. What sort of community response do you get? What sort of impact do you get from people that aren't in the hospital. Do they know about it? Is this something that is widely publicized? What sort of a role does do you want or or envision PFACs having within a community?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think um, I don't have as much experience hearing from people outside the institution, but what I can say is that we have been using our PFAC members in in some innovative ways that allow us to hear from. Those members of our community who are influenced by our PFAC. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, one thing that we're doing here at BI that I think is really exciting is we're actually using members of our PFAC who volunteer to round on patients who are in the hospital. And so we've trained them to interview patients about their experience in the hospital. And, you know, initially we thought that this would be a great way of getting real-time feedback from patients and that we thought, Then maybe our patients would be more willing to open up to a interviewer who was a former patient and understood what they were going through rather than one of their providers. And the response that we've got from patients who have been involved in that program is really remarkable. It seems to be, you know, not only giving us the feedback that we were looking for, but also we found that patients find it very therapeutic and they're getting issues resolved that probably could not have been resolved by. A healthcare provider, and so for me, that's really, really an exciting program, and that's been received well by the community.
1: That's totally extraordinary, and that's the whole point, right? I mean, that's the whole lever arm that we can pull with something like this that doesn't exist if you don't have it,
0: right? Yep.
1: Do you ever find yourself? I must imagine it's an interesting position to be in these discussions as both someone who's been a patient dealing with critical illness and subsequent recovery and a physician who's in active practice. Now something comes up and you're kind of thinking, okay, which, which perspective do I want to advocate for? Who wins? You know, you've got an angel (laughs) on each shoulder saying, all right, Amber, let's go this direction. No, 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 no. This direction is (laughs) more important. Who wins? Who, who gets, who, who, who carries the day?
0: They're fighting it out all the time. Yeah. I think um, it's. I'm actually surprised by how quickly I kind of flip back into the physician role, and how you know quickly, how easy it is to forget what it's like being a patient sometimes. Um, and again, I think that goes back to why it's so important to continually involve patients in the work.
1: Yeah, yeah. That
0: we do, but I mean, there's some things that are just vis- visceral reactions. It's like every time I walk into a room now, I cannot leave the room without making sure the call button isn't reach because I still have those memories of lying in bed and not being able to reach the call button to wow. get the patient medication. So yeah. there's just certain visceral things like that that have, I think, influenced the way that I, that I practice, but I think I still tend to flip back into the physician perspective.
1: When you're rounding on a patient and you make sure that the call button's there, do you ever tell them why you're doing it?
0: Well, that's an interesting dynamic too. It's yeah, you know, how much do you share of your own experience? Exactly, exactly. And that's something that I've really struggled with because yeah. you know, you, you, you want to maybe use it as a tool for empathy, but you don't want to burden your patients with the difficult experiences that you've had yourself. And I've talked about this with colleagues before, and I think one colleague said it to me really well. He said, "Well, you have to think about why you're sharing the information. Are you sharing with your patient because you um, are trying to help them or is it because you're trying to get something off your chest? Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a really good way of thinking about it. And so I've kind of carried that with me going forward. And there there are times where I've had a patient that's been in a really difficult circumstance and they're going to rehab and they don't think they're going to be able to get through rehab. And I can say, well, you know, my husband went through a month in rehab and this is what it was like for him. And sometimes I think that really resonates with people. But I do think you have to use those experiences cautiously. And it's something that I've, I think I may I've made mistakes on and that I've kind of recalibrated as I've gone along um, in terms of how much I am comfortable sharing.
1: Mm -hmm. And then as far as something like this, as it's moving forward, it's Mm -hmm. new for sure. It, It definitely breaks the idea of the all knowing physician even further um, We're getting farther and farther away from that, which is good. More people mm-hmm. having skin in the game, more people having a voice. But as you're going through that, there's got to be pushback. And I wonder where are those, where are the places that that people or groups have said, this is not a good idea, or we don't want to do this. And you get some resistance. Where do you see that come from? And where does the momentum kind of help you get them to to kind of see what you're doing and come aboard?
0: I think there's often this fear that what... Patients or families have to say may be unreasonable, or that we may not be able to accomplish what they're asking us to do, or there may be belief that we know how we already know how to do it, and that we don't need that insight. But I think once someone experiences involving um, a PFAC, that they realize pretty quickly that that's that's not the case. We were really worried when we started the rounding initiative with our PFAC members that I mentioned earlier that there was going to be a lot of resistance from the floor staff saying, well, we're going to start hearing about all these issues that we don't have the resources to manage. And that wasn't the case at all, actually. And, and maybe that's just the luck of the institution that I'm at. But the, the nursing leadership was very enthusiastic about getting this additional feedback. And I think part of it is that, you know, we can take care of issues before they escalate to the point where they're actually really difficult to manage. And we also realized that sometimes actually what a patient needs is just to vet their concerns to somebody who understands what they're going through. And oftentimes that's not always the physician. And sometimes that's enough. And um, sometimes there isn't, you know, a set of actions that need to be taken. And so I think that was one of the lessons that we, that we learned.
1: that was, was really powerful. Being a part of, a PFAC now for a couple of years and being a part of SHM and this national work, are you starting to see, what are you starting to see develop? Are we seeing a movement? Are these popping up all over the country? Is it going slowly? Is it, is the work done? Is it, it, is it everywhere? I mean, I can tell you it's not because we both know it's not, but what, what's the momentum like? How quickly is this, is this kind of propagating around?
0: It seems to be moving pretty quickly, and I think the fact that SHM has taken it up as a, a committee and a, has prioritized bringing the patient and family perspective to the work that we're doing is is kind of indic- indicative of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the next frontier that we're starting to see is this concept of the provider experience affecting the patient experience. And so I'm interested to see, you know, how that plays out and how that influences the direction that institutions are going.
1: Is that around starting to harvest provider stories at the same time as the story of the patient that they were taking care of?
0: Well, I think some of it is more around, you know, what what does a workday look like for a provider uh-huh. and, you know, how does that affect how we take care of our patients? And so if we're stressed, if we're sleep deprived, and if we don't feel taken care of or respected, then our patient's are probably going to feel that way too. And empathy is going to be more difficult. And so are there ways that we can improve the work environment and the work experience for our providers um, in a way that that will, will trickle down to our patients?
1: That is going to be a fascinating perspective to start to draw out. And I would imagine you're going to get very specific and detailed opinions as you start to ask those questions.
0: Yeah, yeah. And we're starting to do that here at, FBI now, and I know other places around the country are doing it as
1: well. And that's a really good overlay, you know, to say, we want you to be at your best when you need to be at your best as a physician (laughs) or a nurse or a therapist or whatever it may be. What do you need so that on on a Friday afternoon, you're still at your best?
0: Exactly. Yep.
1: Is that a way to overcome provider resistance to a program like that to say, Hey, this is, this is you too, that we're, you know, we need to get your opinions on this as well, just as much because you're, you're the person that's driving the bus.
0: Yeah, I think it is. I think a lot of these committees that are springing up within hospitals are actually patient and provider (laughs) experience. And so they're not, they're kind of inseparable. And yeah, definitely. I think that's a good way of integrating the two.
1: Well, it's 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 fascinating work that you're doing. I think it's really remarkable that you've been able to take such a difficult and traumatic event in your life and turn it into something that is going to have a positive effect, most likely over the course of your career across the entire country, if not further. And that is wonderful. As people hear this, they're going to want to know, where do we find out more? How do we activate something like this? What are the resources that are available for someone that says, this is important and I want to learn about it?
0: Yeah, I think the ones that I mentioned earlier are probably the best. So the Beryl Institute, the Institute for Patient and Family Centered Care, and then AHRQ all have toolkits about how to proceed with forming a PFAC if that's something that you're interested in doing. And I'm also happy to speak with anyone who's um, interested in learning more about what we're doing here at BI.
1: Well, I really appreciate the time. This is a fascinating conversation. This is going to obviously continue to develop. There's going to be more and more interesting things that come out. So whenever there is a sea change or or a program comes to fruition and we have new things to discuss, you'll have to come back and join us.
0: Sounds great. Thanks so much for inviting me.
1: And thanks to you for downloading and listening to this episode of Explore the Space. Hope you enjoyed it. Please do take the opportunity to go to iTunes and leave a rating and a review. It's a great way for people who have not found out about the show to learn about it. If you have the time to do that, it would be much appreciated and it really helps us out. If you have any questions about anything that you've heard on the show or questions for me, feel free to email me at mark at com. We will have lots more content coming soon. Hope you enjoyed this episode and we will talk to you then.